This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 66 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, we take a deep dive into what's killing South Africans, including the relative impact of COVID-19. We'll hear from the Africa partner of a major global law firm why the fine print will make yesterday's IMF loan a game changer for the country's economy. We'll also hear how the closing and opening of Apple stores is an accurate way to see how the virus is moving around the world and we'll get insights into the working of herd immunity, a concept which some scientists, particularly in Sweden, believe will be required before the COVID-19 pandemic peters out. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Today's COVID-19 headlines, there is data that's looking pretty encouraging at the moment for South Africa's fight against the pandemic. Although it remains too early to celebrate, the seven-day moving average of daily new cases is now just above 11,000, having eased back markedly from a peak of 12,500 10 days ago. Active cases, i.e. those reported infections that are net of recoveries and mortalities, are at 165,000, with the number having flattened around this level for almost two weeks. Data published today by Johns Hopkins University puts South Africa into a distinctly declining curve, with the analysts describing the trend as down. The seven-day moving average on deaths, however, has not yet broken out of its upward trajectory, with a possible delay in reporting accounting for both the lower mortality rate, which is still only around a third of the global average, and the divergence with the infections curve. More on the subject, including some useful suggestions on how you can avoid becoming one of those statistics, coming up in this episode. Globally, the number of people who've been infected with the coronavirus has risen above 17 million, with 10.5 million of them having recovered and 666,000 died. That's roughly 4% of reported cases. South African deaths are at 7,252 as of Tuesday night, and that's from 460,000 confirmed infections and mortality rate of 1.5%, or just over a third of the global average of 4%. The USA is far and away the hardest-hit nation, with just over 150,000 Americans now having succumbed, and 2.1 million active infections there. That's 36% of the global total. Brazil is next on the list with 89,000 deaths and almost 700,000 active cases, followed by India, Russia and then South Africa at number five. The country yesterday secured a $4.3 billion emergency loan from the International Monetary Fund to help fight the pandemic's consequences. Later in this episode, leading commercial lawyer Peter Leon will explain why the IMF intervention is likely to prove a watershed for South Africa. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. 
Gareth Friedland is the Deputy CEO of Discovery Life and also on the call, Maritha van der Walt, who's the Chief Medical Officer of Discovery Life. Good to have the two of you here together. With COVID-19 having hit the country, are you seeing excess deaths coming as a consequence of this? It's probably too early to say excess deaths. I think we need to see how this plays out over a couple more months. We certainly are seeing claims coming through. We've now paid over 50 death claims for clients who died due to COVID-19 and just under 100 income protection claims for clients who weren't able to work due to COVID-19. So the claims are starting to come through, but we are right at the beginning and moving into the peak now. So I think it will become clearer over the next few months as these claims continue. We'll be able to do the analysis of whether they are truly excess claims and to what extent. Marisa, from your point of view, obviously it makes sense for Discovery Life if fewer people die of COVID-19. Is there much that you can do to suggest to people that they act differently to reduce the mortality potential? Very, very important. How much we can do. Of course, all the preventative measures like washing hands, keeping social distance, wearing masks, avoiding crowded places that we all know about by now. But furthermore, a healthy lifestyle is even more important now in the time of COVID. Discovery Health has done an analysis and it has shown that you can reduce your risk of getting COVID complications if you should get the infection, that you can reduce your risk substantially by exercising. And of course, a healthy diet would boost your immune system. And then obviously, excess alcohol and smoking is never a good idea and more so in the time of COVID, but definitely healthy lifestyle. Over and above that, we have identified our clients that we feel could be more vulnerable if they get COVID. And we have sent out communications that we think take extra care, prevent the disease. That's the best cure at the moment. And then also that when you get COVID, that you are provided with an oximeter, which is a little device that measures the oxygen in your blood because we know that with COVID, people's oxygen levels drop substantially and dangerously and they still feel okay. And then it's actually almost too late when they get to the hospital. So those are all the proactive things that we've done from a discovery group point of view. How has it been impacting the normal mortalities? In other words, we hear that people aren't going into hospitals because they're too scared because they might pick up COVID. But if, for instance, they got cancer or heart disease or some other issue, Gareth, are you seeing a rise as a consequence of this? Not yet. You know, again, we're going to have to monitor that as we go, but we have just released our 2019 stats. So that obviously will give us a good base to compare against once 2020 is over and we can start seeing how it's played out in terms of other claimed causes. There's a number of hypotheses out there that we're going to have to monitor and try and understand. Are there people potentially not going to hospitals and potentially under-diagnosing conditions at this point in time? We know that people are scared to go to doctors unless it's incredibly necessary at times like these. So there's the possibility that you might see fewer claims now and more claims later. But that's probably too early to say at this point in time. But we certainly have analyzed our 2019 claim statistics and details and there's some fascinating things coming out of that.
you asked Marita about the impact of lifestyle on COVID-19. I thought something fascinating to throw into the mix. We've done a study which looks at the ability through regular physical activity to reduce your probability of admission given a COVID-19 infection. And it's very well known that age is a huge factor. And as you get older, your probability of being more severely ill due to the virus, due to the disease is higher. But what we've seen is that if you take a 40-year-old who's doing no physical activity and a 60-year-old who's doing high physical activity, we actually see the exact same probability of admission. So by doing physical activity and leading a healthy lifestyle, you can actually almost reverse out the age risk factor that is inherent. Unfortunately, we can't change our age, but we certainly can change our risk according to lifestyle changes. So 60 can be the new 40 (laughs) if you exercise more. But just to pick up with you, Marita, I wanted to understand this better. So when you get COVID-19, once you are sick, then you should exercise or can you continue exercising or is that not a good time to do so? No, it's in the phase before you get sick. And hopefully, if you still unfortunately get the virus, then you won't get seriously ill or you will reduce your chances of getting admitted and getting complications. If you're sick, you should not exercise because this virus specifically attacks all the cells in the body including the heart cells and direct injury to the heart muscle cells. So you don't want to exercise when you're sick. So don't exercise when you have a temperature. Don't exercise even when you have normal flu or when you're sick. But definitely healthy lifestyle, regular exercise will prevent you from getting severely ill. Just getting back to the 2019 data, because that is very interesting. The number of deaths you've had from COVID-19 as a percentage of the total deaths that you cover or you pay out for every year, is it fractional still at the moment? Absolutely, Alec. It's very small at this stage. It will obviously change over the next few months, but right now that number is relatively small. We've paid out nearly 100 million rand in COVID-19 debts so far. And just to put that into context, we paid out 2.3 billion rand last year for our clients who had passed away. So at this stage, still fairly insignificant, but it's going to increase. Inside COVID-19 from Business. Peter Leon is a partner at Herbert Smith Freehills, a a big law firm. It is indeed. We have around 26 offices around the world. We started the office in Johannesburg in October 2015, so coming up for five years, and I joined in December 2015. We have several thousand lawyers scattered around the world, but the main hub of the firm is the UK and Australia with a number of offices in Europe, this office in Johannesburg, and a number of offices in Asia, obviously in China, Hong Kong, Singapore, and so on, and an office in New York. And as the Africa co-chair, if they want to know anything about what's happening on the continent, specifically South Africa, they phone you. That's right, more or less. The whole IMF loan, the 71 billion rands that South Africa is now signing up for, many people are saying it's the first of perhaps many. What's your interpretation of it? I think, Alex, it's very significant. It's a trite expression, but it's really crossing the Rubicon. Because if you look at it, the ANC government has been completely hostile to loans from the IMF ever since the ANC came to power in 1994. As you know, there have been loans from the World Bank for Eskom, for Madupi and Kassidi about 10 years ago. The World Bank has been more acceptable because it comes with less conditionality. 
And I think the government's view on this financing is that they could go and get a rapid financing instrument because it has less conditionality than a standby arrangement, which comes with full conditionality. But actually, if you look at the fine print of the letter of intent signed by the governor and the minister of finance to Christina Georgieva, the head of the IMF, there's quite a lot of conditionality there. And I think we can talk about that in a bit more detail. But clearly, the way I'm reading the tea leaves is the government is now committing itself for the first time to embarking on structural economic reform around not just the labor market, but the product market and taking a different approach to state-owned enterprises. So I think it's a whole new ballgame, potentially. Explain conditionality. Conditionality, there are two types of facility. I'm speaking very generally with the IMF. The one is a standby arrangement. That's where you take your full loan quota. And South Africa would actually benefit enormously from that in terms of what it could borrow in terms of the special drawing rights it has with the IMF. But this particular facility is what's called a rapid financing instrument where there is much less conditionality because the loan's given really for an emergency situation which the country now faces as a result of what's happened with the COVID pandemic. So with a standby arrangement, there'd be a whole lot of conditions imposed on a borrower in terms of what it can do in relation to the economy and what it has to do about restructuring the economy, which the IMF will insist on. With a rapid financing instrument, what South Africa has borrowed, the $4.3 billion, it's much less so. But what you need to look at is the letter of intent that the government has given the IMF. And it's that document that I think is going to be a game changer for the way in which this country goes forward in terms of its relationship with the Bretton Woods institutions. So what's in the fine print? A undertaking by the government to embark on deep reforms to the product market. And the IMF has been going on about this. If you look at the Article 4 report, which the IMF comes out with every January after the annual mission here, the IMF have been going on, as have the World Bank, about reforming the product market, making it more competitive, opening up network industries. That means things like logistics, ports, harbors, electricity, i.e. energy. Then the government's also said to the IMF that they they prepared to embark on more labor market reform. What I think is very significant in the governor's letter and the minister's letter is that they give an undertaking that it will become easier for first-time workers to find a job, which is obviously not the case at the moment, given the grip that the unions have on the labor market in this country. So I think the fact that the government is now saying it's prepared to embark on product market reform and labor market reform, to my mind, is an absolute first. Are you feeling more optimistic about South Africa in the wake of this? I really do think it's a step in the right direction. I mean, I am very worried about the current trajectory of the country, and I'm worried about some of the steps the government's taken and the way that regulations come out week after week without, I think, a lot of thought. But I do think this is a very significant step, and it does give me a sense of optimism that the country is slowly moving in the right direction. We have to see what happens. Harold Wilson said, a week is a long time in politics, and this is a process which is going to take years. By the way, this will be a facility normally with a rapid fire instrument to the facility for about four to five years. I saw that the repayments start in 2023. It's a very cheap loan, 1% focused yeah, on COVID-19. I suppose 1%, but it's yeah. in dollars, <laughs> but very yeah, COVID-19 but be, related. Yeah, but you look at what the government's having to pay in terms of bonds, 1% is nothing, relatively speaking. Indeed. Once COVID-19 is behind us, how do you expect it hmm. to then unravel? 
we know that going into the crisis, the pandemic, South Africa's finances were already at a parlous stage. There was a reluctance to do economic restructuring, which is required. Now that we've seen this money come in, how do you see it playing out, perhaps with the IMF support, or do you think they can go to China and raise non-conditional funds there? Well, you know, it's very interesting. That's a good question you ask. If you look at a country like Zambia, for example, which has not been able to get financing from the IMF to deal with the crisis they face in the wake of a sort of fluctuating copper price and the COVID issue, the Zambian government have now reached out to China for exactly that reason. But, you know, the Chinese are not foolish about these things, Alec, and there's obviously a lot of Chinese lending into Africa. A lot of work's been done on this in Harvard. In fact, by the person who's become the chief economist of the World Bank, Carmen Reinhardt. And the Chinese, when they lend in projects in Africa, do so at a pretty hefty interest rate. So, I mean, I think looking to China to solve these problems, you certainly won't be able to borrow at 1%. That I can assure you. No way. So in terms of your question, I think this is a step in the right direction. I think it really depends on how the economy recovers next year and the year afterwards in the wake of COVID and to what extent does the government honour these commitments around structural reform. But frankly, if it doesn't do so, it won't easily be able to go back to the IMF to get another facility. The government can talk about going to the African Development Bank or the BRICS Bank, but nobody has the firepower of the IMF when it comes to lending. Nobody. They're the only game in town. Apple is well known for its ability to stay ahead of the business strategy and product development curve. The trick is being repeated in its response to COVID-19. Siri can even help you figure out your symptoms, guiding you through a series of questions to determine whether you have the virus. In this compelling piece from our partners at the Wall Street Journal, we discover why Apple is the company to watch in the fight against COVID-19. Let's begin here, in the U.S. on March 14, 2020. There are 1,678 confirmed COVID-19 cases in the U.S. that day, according to the World Health Organization. That same day, Apple decides to close its stores across the country. Well, Apple is temporarily closing all of its stores outside China. A week later, on March 21st, cases in the U.S. have gone up by over 800 percent. And in that week, dozens and dozens of more retailers close, including Nike, Sephora, Ikea, and The Gap. We tracked hundreds of store closures, global coronavirus case data, and official lockdown measures, and found that as the virus spread across the world, Apple has been one of the first to close its stores, specifically in the United States. In most instances, Apple shutdowns prove to be an early indicator of the trajectory of individual cases, other retail closures, and government-mandated lockdowns. One piece that's really surprised me most about uh, the pandemic more broadly and how Apple has behaved is the number of companies that have either followed their lead or are looking for information from Apple. Now, with states coming out of lockdown, Apple has reopened and reclosed some stores. Some news here from Apple that it's going to temporarily close some stores again here, Scott, due to COVID-19 spikes. That could be a signal of what's ahead. It's sort of like the Waffle House, minus the waffles. See, the American restaurant chain changes its menu based on how severe it thinks a hurricane or storm may be. 
closing only when the damage is expected to be extreme. So, is Apple the COVID equivalent, or is Apple just more nimble than other retailers because of its business strategy and $200 billion in the bank? Apple wasn't always ahead on store shutdowns. Take its first closure in Tsingdao, China on January 28th. There were 5,974 confirmed COVID-19 cases in China that day. Yet other stores like Starbucks and The Gap had closed some of its China stores that same day or earlier. Within a week of Apple's first closure, COVID cases in China had grown 307%. On February 1st, Apple shut all 40-plus of its mainland China locations. John Emmanuel Biondi is a principal at Deloitte and works with some of the world's top retailers. We did not have any idea at that point of time of what was about to come. The discussion we had was related to the impact of COVID, not so much on the consumers and the market in the United States, but the disruption from a supply chain standpoint. By March, with the virus spreading far beyond China, Apple moved a lot faster. More than a week before the UK went into lockdown, on March 14th, Apple closed its stores in the country, while others like Nike, Adidas, and Starbucks stayed open for two to six days longer. Meanwhile, the rest of Apple stores outside of China closed on the 14th too, including in the US, where it has 271 stores. That's more than any other country. I would say that every retailer who was in Asia looked at the measures that were implemented in Asia and say, can I implement, or to what extent can I implement some of the similar measures in the United States? In the US, only Patagonia closed that same day. Over the next week, more than 50 major retailers closed. And then in May, stores began reopening. And in June, Apple hit the brakes and reclosed some including in Texas, California, and Florida. In Orlando specifically, Apple reclosed its store at the Florida Mall on June 26th. Two weeks later, cases in that county had more than doubled. Still, other retailers in the area, including Nike and Best Buy, remained open. Both companies declined to comment. So, how does Apple decide when and where to close? The company says it looks at the following data on the county level. Case numbers, positivity rates, hospital, ICU, and ventilator usage, asymptomatic testing, and more. If public info isn't available, the company says it calls public health departments to request data. But why Apple? Why has the company been quicker to close stores than others? It's not because Apple stores aren't money makers, but rather they're not Apple's only way to make money. And Apple has the money to do it. Gene Munster has been researching Apple for nearly 20 years. We estimate that their physical stores are somewhere between 8 and 10 percent of total revenue. And online is an additional 10 to 12 percent of, of total revenue. Munster and other analysts predict that large parts of the physical retail sales have shifted to online. During the second quarter of 2020, which included the months of January to March, Apple sold nearly $50 billion worth of products, and CEO Tim Cook told CNBC its online growth was off the charts. The bigger cost to Apple in store closures? In the March quarter, Apple paid out to its retail employees 
about $100 million, even though they weren't uh, actually in the stores working. In the June quarter, that number is going to be just under $200 million. And so keep in mind, brick-and-mortar retail business is close to a $30 billion a year annual business. And so even though these numbers are large, they have the framework to continue to support and pay for employees throughout the, the pandemic. Apple's free cash flow in the March quarter was $30.3 billion, even as its stores were closing. Much of that came from online sales. That allowed it to pay its retail staff despite its stores being shut. And Apple can continue to do so because it has one of the biggest rainy day funds in business. When you factor in its debt, Apple has a little over $80 billion of cash in the bank. Compare that with Nike's $8 billion or Best Buy's nearly $4 billion. Apple has so much cash on hand that it could run its operations for more than a year without cutting its costs or selling a single iPhone. They have a lot of money. They have an ability to navigate this, uh, unlike most companies. And so I would look for Apple to uh, have more store closings than other retailers who are navigating a lot of the same information. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. The concept of herd immunity entered the popular discourse when Sweden gained international attention for a unique, relaxed attitude to the coronavirus outbreak. While the rest of the world was imposing national lockdowns, Sweden chose not to. Instead, it imposed comparatively light measures like asking citizens to maintain social distancing. The Swedish government deferred to an approach of herd immunity to tackle the pandemic. Herd immunity is described as a point where enough people in a population have become immune to the virus, either through vaccines or previous infections, so that the risk of new infections lowers across the board. In other words, the idea was if Sweden kept its bars and restaurants open, more people among the less vulnerable would develop immunity and ultimately slow the spread. At first, Sweden's controversial approach appeared to be working, but now... As we hear from our partners at the Wall Street Journal, the scientists are not so sure. We know that COVID-19 spreads through close contact, making crowded areas potentially deadly. But when some members of a crowd are immune, that begins to change. This is called herd immunity. It's what's protecting much of the population from diseases like measles and polio, and it's what's driving vaccine efforts today. The notion is there will be enough people in that community who are immune so that when you go to pass the disease on, you won't be able to pass it on in a way that it will propagate. Economies around the world could then safely reopen, and some say it could put an end to the pandemic. But the path to herd immunity includes big hurdles, and experts say it could take years or more if we get there at all. We'll explain. When scientists want to determine how fast a virus might spread, they look at its reproduction number. This represents how many people could catch the virus from a single infected person when no one in the population is immune. That helps us to to understand how much additional immunity or other measures do we need to implement in place to start to bring this epidemic under control as opposed to having it expand over time. For the novel coronavirus, scientists say an infected person will likely spread it to two to four other people. 
When enough people in a population gain immunity, the chances of infecting others goes down. And once it falls below a certain point, it becomes harder and harder for the virus to spread. As a result, the majority of the community becomes protected, not just those who are immune. Over time, the virus dissipates and really uh, essentially goes away or circulates at very low levels in that community. Scientists say there are two ways a population can reach herd immunity, through broad infection or, more commonly, vaccination. To get there through infection, the majority of a population needs to get sick from a virus and develop molecular defenses like antibodies that fight off the disease. But this method would be deadly. Experts estimate that less than 5% of people worldwide have had COVID-19. Yet scientists say to reach herd immunity, that number would have to be between 60 and 70%. If we need to get to 60 or 70% infections, uh, that's obviously more than you know, 4 billion people getting infected. Uh, that would be tens of millions of people dying. Uh, it would be hundreds of millions of people getting very, very sick. Uh, it would be devastating. It would be devastating for the entire global population. It would be devastating for the economies. And it is wholly unnecessary. There's also no guarantee that broad infection would lead to eradication. Experts say the more efficient way to herd immunity is through vaccination. That's how scientists eradicated smallpox. Because of vaccines, childhood mortality has dropped dramatically. Kids no longer die of measles. They don't die of the diseases that kids used to die of. But experts say they don't know enough about the coronavirus to predict the likelihood of reaching herd immunity and that there are large barriers to getting there, even with a vaccine. How long a COVID-19 vaccine will last is still unclear, but it may be measured in months or years rather than a lifetime. Another challenge, not all vaccines in development will work the same, and their effectiveness could differ. The better a vaccine is in terms of the level of protection and the duration of protection, um, the, the further it gets you towards that point of, of herd immunity, right? But even a less than perfect vaccine, if given to enough people in the population, can help reduce the, the spread. Scientists are working quickly to test dozens of vaccines already in development. But it could take years to figure out which ones are more effective. So even if people get vaccinated, some could be more susceptible to catching the virus. But even as cases surge around the world, some experts are optimistic. We suspect that people who have gotten COVID-19 remain protected for, for many months at least because we haven't seen a large number of repeat infections. We also know that it's possible to give people multiple vaccinations. So I'm hopeful that we can develop uh, over time a vaccine that even if we do need to give multiple doses, will be highly effective in generating the, the levels of immunity that we need to, um, to beat this disease. If this happens, global herd immunity may be possible. But until then, health experts have stressed that measures like social distancing and wearing masks will be key to slowing down the spread. This has been episode 66 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews of the highlights that are featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or on our app. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until Monday, cheerio.
This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.